Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Thanks for being with us on this Friday. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, are you more reluctant to believe everything you see on the internet with the advancement of AI? Are you more looking at things and making sure they are real, even though uh, deep fakes and fake photographs are nothing new. My next guest has been looking at this, and Dr. Walter Shearer is the Collegiate Associate Professor of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Notre Dame, also the author of A History of Fake Things on the Internet. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, it's really great to be on the show today. Well, it is something that, uh, again, not new, but certainly with technology, it's become, I think, easier to make things that really aren't uh, real at all. And that's this is something that you've been looking at. How did you get involved with looking at fake things and looking at the history of them? Yeah, that's a great question. So my background, of course, is in computer scientists. Um, I do a lot of technical work. I have a large laboratory uh, working on matters related to artificial intelligence, uh, computer vision, uh, media forensics uh, here at Notre Dame. And the media forensic aspect is really what got me interested in fake things on the internet. Um, so media forensics, if you're not familiar with this <laughs> subdiscipline of computer science, um, it's intended to develop algorithms that can detect uh, manipulation uh, in imagery. It can detect synthetic imagery. And of course, that's a big concern when we consider AI these days. Um, and working on these algorithms for years, I kind of started to get interested in the content itself. Um, where did it come from? Who was making it? Was this a longstanding problem? What are the examples right, that we see online? Uh, and once I went down that rabbit hole, um, a lot of interesting history surfaced, right? And, and a lot of really, really fascinating aspects of culture on the internet sort of came to light. And that's what the book is really about. And is it about what drives people to put fake pictures or to manipulate photos and put them out there or, or also the, the response to them and how people react, either whether they know they're fake or not? It's all of those things. Uh, and it's a really fascinating story, too, that connects to human creativity. And that's a big piece of the story, I think, which is missed uh, in all of the hysteria around fake things on the Internet. Um, as it turns out, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the Internet was intended to be. And that's where we run into trouble with this type of content. Um, for instance, right in the sort of dot com boom of the 1990s, um, there uh, is this messaging about the Internet being an information superhighway, essentially a database of facts, right? You would go there for serious matters like education and commerce. Um, but that wasn't really why the Internet was designed, right? That was messaging coming from uh, corporations that were moving into this new virtual space. Um, going back in time to the 1960s, um, you have uh, the famous Canadian uh, media theorist Marshall McLuhan out there. Um, talking a lot about uh, the media, especially the future of the media, and what information networks would be like in the near future. And he basically describes the internet we have today, um, which is this creative space, right? Um, and of course, he's making very bold claims. You'll be able to project your imagination 
uh, into this infrastructure, right? You're gonna tap into your central nervous system uh, and show other people directly what you were thinking. And these other people will be all over the globe. Um, and if you think about creative technologies today, uh, we kind of can do that, right? Um, even looking at really current artificial intelligence systems, right? They're sort of embodying this idea. Um, image synthesis tools like Midjourney, right? You can prompt them uh, to give you sort of visual representations of what you're dreaming about right now, right? Uh, and you can send them those images to other people. Um, and of course, all of that is fake, right? Uh, these are fictions, um, but fiction has always served an important role in society. And McLuhan knows that. Um, he's just trying to figure out how do we scale it up, right? How do we really build culture in a more expansive way? Um, and that message, I think, got lost along the way, right? So you get this tension between um, the information superhighway vision of these corporations and this McLuhan vision of the internet um, as this fantasy land, right? And people love the fantasy land version, right? I think that's what keeps most of us on the internet today. <laughs> For sure. Um, so people love the fantasy land version, but but when does it become uh, dangerous almost in that you, you, I'm sure you have looked at, at conspiracy theories and, and hoaxes that have taken off, even photos. I mean, when you see a photo <clears throat> that's shared, it could be something like, oh, here's a rainforest and then here's what it looks like today. And it's, and it's a picture of it completely gone, but but it's fake. Yeah, absolutely. And the book uh, dives deep into this as well. Um, so what I think is really interesting, again, I think you see a lot of prevailing concerns around perfect fakes, right? You know, it's like, we're going to create images and videos that are so realistic, right? It'll fool the public and revise history in some capacity. Um, it turns out that really hasn't worked out, right? Uh, again, there's been a lot of discussion about that specifically with deep fakes, which appeared in 2017. Um, but as far as anybody can tell, they've really had no impact on politics. Um, the content we really need to be aware of uh, turns out to be memes, right? It's the, the manipulated content that is obviously fake. That tends to resonate really well with the public. Um, and that's really interesting when you think about it, right? Um, I mean, a lot of that material, of course, is just purely humorous. Some of it is political uh, humor, right? So parody, um, you have satire, right? All these different things. Um, all those are really important. Oop, hello, did I get disconnected? No, you're still there. Sorry. I, I, okay. I, no, and it just that made me think also of, of chat GPT, of, of AI, and how technology has really advanced. So is, is yeah, it different? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that make it more, uh, more difficult to kind of differentiate between things that are real and fake? Yeah, so AI is, is obviously upping the bar, right? There's just so much uh, more out there because these tools are so accessible, right? When you look at Dolly, when you look at MidJourney, uh, anybody can really use these tools. Um, and so that just prompting a tool, right, makes it far easier than, say, using Photoshop years ago, right? Um, there's just so much more you can do with these things, which is really interesting, I think, for a lot of people, but also perhaps a little bit more dangerous, right, when you think about it. And dangerous because also, like you said, maybe there, there isn't evidence that it's changed politics or that it that it's had that kind of an impact. But even when we look right now at, at what's happening with the, with the war between Israel and Hamas, if we look at the war in Ukraine, the images that are coming out and, and there have been examples of people putting out images that that are not what they're saying they are. And, and there's so much on the Internet that that there is always going to be a certain group or a certain contingent that believes it. 
Yeah, that's right. But I think that's nothing new when we consider politics, right? Um, I mean, there's always been uh, messaging that is not factual, <laughs> right, coming from politicians. Um, there are narratives, right, that that compete with what we can observe on the ground. Um, I think technology is just facilitating that these days. Um, but is that really the Internet's fault, right? Um, I don't really think that's the case. Where do you see it going from here? I know you've looked at this and the history of deep fakes and and fake things. Where do you see it going? Do you see it growing or changing? Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, I think we're going to see more and more capacity for storytelling on the Internet, right? More expansive virtual spaces. Um, does that at some point really compete with right uh, conventional understandings of reality? Um, I think that's an interesting question to ask, um, but certainly one we can't answer at this moment. Um, I mean, as you mentioned, right, the technology in the AI space is getting better and better, right, which is something we've definitely got to consider uh, when we think about the ethics of all of this. And and is it also, with the, with the ethics of it, is it the um, responsibility also of platforms? And, and we've seen this on some, uh, such as X, if something is shared that is factually incorrect, you'll, you'll often see a comment saying, actually, this is what happened and this is why that particular post is wrong. Is, is there going to be more of the onus put on the platforms to make sure what they're sharing is not fake? Yeah, so this is a really, really interesting aspect, right, that's emerging on these platforms. Uh, community input to basically say, wait a minute, right, um, this is not what it appears to be. Um, I think that's actually a really good mechanism for diffusing, right, some of these controversies. Um, and that's kind of how this has always worked, right? When we think about, you know, a piece of fake media and its reception, um, if there's some consensus building that it's not true, right, then it's easily dismissed. And that's kind of why deep fakes really haven't ever resonated, right? Um, you know, it's just there's so much evidence to the contrary about something, right, a major public figure is saying in many cases um, that it diffuses the situation uh, right off the bat. It is uh, such an interesting field uh, and uh, what you've looked at and put in the book. Walter, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Great conversation. All right. That is Walter Shearer, Collegiate Associate Professor of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Notre Dame, also the author of a new book. It is called A History of Fake Things on the Internet. This is Mornings with Simi. It is Friday morning and it is time to check in with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer. Good morning to you. And good morning, Jill. Ah, so much to get to. And once again, we are taking a look at housing, but a bit of an update there. Yeah, so you will remember uh, during the last two weeks of the fall legislature session, the government made a number of extraordinary claims about what its housing legislation would do. They claimed it would lead to the construction of more than 100,000 units of housing. And they also claimed, uh, to the astonishment of many observers of the housing market, that it would lead to a drop in prices. So the opposition, uh, particularly pay tribute here to Adam Olson of the Green Party, uh, said, are you just picking these numbers out of the air? Or like, where does it come from, right? The government said, we never just pick numbers out of the air. They said, we have a model, an economic model. Oh. Could we see it? No, it's not ready for release. Uh, the op government many times asked to produce the model that underpinned all these incredible claims, and it just wasn't ready for release. Well, by an amazing coincidence, the Premier released the model yesterday, one week, one week after 
the legislature adjourned, so nobody can ask any questions about the model. It's now ready. Now, I hate to be cynical, Jill. Maybe there was a shortage of typists in the provincial capital or, you know, it was held up at the printers or the electronic version, you know, needed a bit of proofreading. Anyway, we now have the model. And what an incredible thing it is. It runs 200 pages. I've been through most of it, and I would have to say... It's questionable, the government's claim. <laughs> uh, but one thing, hey, the New Democrats have doubled down. So during the session, they said 130,000 units of housing over 10 years. They've now doubled that projection, 250,000 units of housing over 10 years. The other incredible claim they made was that it would actually lead to a drop in prices. They've scaled that down slightly. During the session, they said it would lead to a 14% drop in, in prices. They're now saying, well, it's only 12%. But all of this, Jill, it won't surprise you, having been in this business a long time and seen many claims from government about what its programs are going to do, come with an awful lot of limitations. And in the long run, that's probably where the news is. Exactly. I, I, I have not gone through uh, the 200 pages, Vaughn. But well, Why not? What kind of a journalist are you? you got nothing better to do than read 200 pages of economic modeling with graphs and charts? You want to get to sleep tonight? There you go. Yeah, I'm saving it for the weekend. That is my, my Saturday night plans. Uh, but I did look at, at some of the quotes in the release that went out, and I love some of the language in that yeah. it's going to boost supply elasticity. It yeah. is going to de-risk some of the uh, the uh, the industry, and it's going to be something that other provinces will emulate. Well, who cares yeah. if other provinces are going to emulate it? I mean, it was, I found it very uh, interesting language. I agree. My favorite thing so far in my reading of it is the 12% drop in prices, which was originally 14%, and now it's been scaled down to 12 When you read the actual report... That is not a prediction, homeowners or would-be home buyers, that actual prices will drop by 12%. Now, that, that's an, a person who heard a cabinet minister or the premier saying 12% drop in prices, which they said repeatedly, might go, oh, okay, so I look at my assessed value of my house or of a one that I want to buy, and thanks to this housing program, it's going to be 12% less. No, no, no. No, no, no. What it means is that, <laughs> I love this. What it means is that housing prices will not be as high as they would have been without this wonderful 200-page economic model. So if the government did nothing, house prices would go up, say, 17%. If they only go up 5%, because of the model, well, that's a 12% drop in prices. Hmm. Wow. Um, <laughs> folks, don't try this at home with your, with your family budget. You're, you'll be in hawk to the bank very, very quickly if you do that kind of math. So the 12% drop in prices turns out to be, ah, uh, you know, mathematical trickery. It isn't anything. Uh, the most interesting thing in this report, however, is something for homeowners. If you own a place and you're wondering about the impact of this on your home. So you got a single family home in a single family neighborhood, 
and the government is going to allow the construction, is going to enforce the construction of uh, four-unit multiplexes in your neighborhood. If you're near a transit station, you may be looking at a 20-story uh, condominium tower going up. And the, the government was asked during the session, and this is something that really upset Adam Olson and his reaction, the Greens. He said, isn't this going to lead to like a windfall profit for somebody who owns one of these single family homes and can suddenly tear the place down and build four units or sell it to somebody who does that? And the government said, oh, no, no, no. We've, we've looked at this all over the world. And, you know, it, it, that's not what happens. You don't understand the economics of the housing market. Well, Joel, you read the fine print of this report, and it's clear that's exactly what will happen. Changing the zoning in single-family neighborhoods in this dramatic way will add value. It'll add value to any single-family home. It'll add a lot of value if you happen to live near a transit station or a bus loop. And the report deals at length with <clears throat> a phrase that's going to chill every homeowner, which is value capture. How does government capture that increased value? Well, one way would be development charges. If you charge the cost of adding infrastructure to the neighborhood and a school and all that to service all the extra people that are moving in, well, that would be value capture. And right now we do some of that with development charges. But the open question, Jill, is, as you know, housing property in BC, under the rules of the assessment authority, is assessed on highest and best use. Well, right now, the highest and best use of your single-family home is a single-family home because the zoning doesn't allow you to do anything else. It might allow you to build a laneway house. Going forward, you know, if you're sitting on a single-family home within, what, 800 meters of a bus loop, well, you could now have a 20-story apartment building on that site. And that's value added. And does government capture that, Jill, mm -hmm. by through property taxes? The report doesn't really say what's going to happen. But yeah, there's huge implications to this. They just don't bear out all the things the government claims would happen. No, exactly. Uh, even in uh, those 200 pages, not to all of those answers. And we are continuing now with the Vancouver Suns' Vaughn Palmer with the view from Victoria. And Vaughn also talking a little bit on the federal government and the emissions cap when it comes to oil and gas and a lot of reaction to that. Yeah, I'd like to go back, though, just briefly to this housing plan, the 200-pager, sure. because um, when I started in this business a century ago or whatever it was, mm. one of the first things I got told was, you know, when the government puts out a report or an economic analysis, if it's really done by independent people outside government, look to the station, the statement of limitations. You know, a good academic, and several of them worked on this, or even a private modeling agency will put a statement somewhere in there about the limitations of the survey. So the one in this housing survey we got <clears throat> premier released on Thursday uh, runs about four pages. It starts around page 147 for anyone out there looking through the 200 <laughs> pages. And, and some of the things it says, you go, how valuable are these projections? For example, the authors assumed fixed interest rates. Well, 
what universe have they been inhabiting for the last three years? You know, one of the biggest obstacles to home ownership is getting your hands on a mortgage and uh, interest rates have been all over the map. Another assumption, they did not consider the constraints on local infrastructure. Well, when you talk to anybody on a local council or mayor, they go, look, if you're going to start adding fourplexes in a single family neighborhood, or 20-story towers around a bus loop, you are going to immediately run up against the problem of infrastructure and the carrying capacity of the sewers and all that and parking. And the report didn't look at that. Another limitation, it does not take into account local zoning and um, uh, housing plans because they don't know what they are. So they're making a whole bunch of assumptions about the impact on the 85 cities and towns that are impacted by this legislation, and they don't know, because they haven't analyzed it, the impact of existing zoning and uh, development plans. So, oh, and another one, their construction estimate doesn't really deal with labor shortages. Well, again, talk to anybody in the building industry. They say, if you're going to start making it easier to build 20-story towers, and that's the government's goal, around SkyTrain stations and bus loops, where are you going to find the workforce? It's going to come from somewhere else because we have a huge shortage of skilled construction workers. So is it really going to open up to the construction of 250,000 units of housing, or is it going to simply transfer the workforce from what would have been built anyway to the higher profit buildings that the government wants to see? So you read that statement of limitations and you go, gosh, the New Democrats have invested an awful lot in these forecasts. Jill, that forecast you're hearing from the government, that is mostly intended for public consumption between now and election day next, next year. We won't know for a longer time whether or not the assumptions in this model will actually deliver what the New Democrats claim they will deliver. Well, and like you said, Vaughn, uh, not to, to be cynical, but is anybody Ooh, expecting... Me? Cynical? No. <laughs> or anyone. Do you think anyone is going to hold them to account? And, and when we don't see 200,000 new housing units and we don't see this reduction, even though, like you said, the reduction isn't a reduction in housing prices, it's, yeah. it's less of a, an increase. Do you think anyone's going to be disappointed or shocked that those things didn't materialize? I think what we will see is a real clash between the provincial government and local government. And I think it'll be coming at us fairly quickly because the limitations of this model mean that local councils and mayors and city bureaucracies are going to have to redo their zoning laws very, very quickly. And we've already seen that some municipalities, I'll use Langley as an example, are saying, you know, we're going to actually have to go back to square one on some of the projects we've approved because now we have to live with this new regimen. So I agree with your uh, question there, Jill, that uh, the actual results of this we'll know years after the next election. But the showdown over this, the provincial government's ambition versus the limitations of what a municipality can reasonably accomplish, uh, we're going to be seeing that starting right away. There's municipalities have been waiting for this detail. They now have to adapt to it. They got to have themselves ready to roll in the new era by the end of June. And I think there's going to be a lot of fallout on that front.
Especially because of that, if, if no one's holding the provincial government to account and expecting them to do this, how can they turn around and say, well, we might not, but you, you civic governments, you have to. Uh, yeah, well, uh, the voters' big chance to hold the New Democrats to account is coming uh, October the 19th, as the Premier again reminded us this week. Uh, but, you know, part of the challenge there is the holding to account is done by the opposition parties, and they are somewhat in disarray these days, to be generous about the situation. <laughs> that uh, is very, very true. All right, on that note, uh, we're, we're right out of time, so we'll talk yep, we'll oil, back and to gas oil and gas Monday. another yep. day. <laughs> All For right. sure. Thank okay, you. Okay, Jill, thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Vaughn Palmer, Vancouver Sun columnist, with his view from Victoria. This is Mornings with Simi. Thanks so much for being with us on this Friday morning. Well, as we have talked about before, the opioid crisis in this province has claimed thousands of lives. Much of those overdose deaths linked to fentanyl, whether or not it's pure fentanyl or cut in with another drug. And some new research out of the United States shows there is also a link between a new syndrome and the and prenatal uh, people who uh, use fentanyl and when it is exposed to a fetus prenatally. Well, the research takes place in the United States, but could that also be happening here in Canada? Well, joining me to talk more about that is Dr. Karen Grip, clinical geneticist, also a pediatrician at Nemours Children's Health at Wilmington, Delaware. Dr. Grip, thank you so much for being here. Yes, yeah, sure. Thank you for your interest in this study. We appreciate it. Well, it's an important study uh, looking at what's happening with fentanyl, with babies that may have been exposed to fentanyl. I know this was done in the United States, but we certainly have an opioid crisis here in BC as well. What exactly was this study looking at? So we were seeing patients who came to us clinically for a number of birth differences. And as we usually do in clinical genetics, we try to understand what the reason for these birth differences is. And we suspected a genetic condition called Smith-Lemley-Opitz syndrome based on the patient's findings. But we were unable to make a specific genetic diagnosis. We were struck by the similarities amongst these patients. And what they all had in common was the prenatal exposure to large amounts of fentanyl because the mothers had a fentanyl use disorder. And so we were concerned that maybe this exposure was the reason for these birth defects. And that's how it started. We collected patients who were very similar to each other. We ruled out causes that we could identify other than the fentanyl. And we found that there's no genetic reason, but that these patients share the severe prenatal fentanyl exposure. So that's how we got started. Is it something like when in the past we've heard about fetal alcohol syndrome or where babies have been exposed to other drugs at that very early stage? Yes, I think that is an excellent analogy. We view it as similar to fetal alcohol syndrome possibly in that it's a large amount of exposure throughout pregnancy, including early pregnancy, that sometimes can cause these severe birth defects but not in every child that was exposed. So we don't know what other contributing factors there might be. With that kind of that common denominator, though, that there had been prenatal exposure to fentanyl, 
Did you look specifically at how much exposure there was or were there differences depending on on how much uh, how much the exposure was? That is a very good and important question. And unfortunately, that's a very hard to answer question because of the circumstances of these pregnancies. These mothers did not have a lot of prenatal care and they did not document the amount of fentanyl they used. So while this is a very important question, it is not one that we can answer and it would take much larger study prospectively enrolling women to see what goes on in the pregnancy and that is very hard information to gather. So unfortunately, we don't have these details. What we do know is that these were moms who had an opioid use disorder who were not using small amounts of drugs but rather large amounts consistently. And you talked about what was happening, this, this, this syndrome that was apparent when, when you were dealing or, or talking with mothers where there had been that prenatal fentanyl exposure. What types of characteristics or what types of, of anomalies were consistent? The children have very striking facial features with a relatively short nasal tip, a little bit of droopy eyes, a small chin, and many also had a cleft palate. In addition to having hand abnormalities with a single crease in each palm and thumbs that are relatively short and broad and held in an adducted position, they had foot position abnormalities, sometimes called Rocabrata mortalitis equinovarus. And many of the males had some genital abnormalities. All of these patients had severe feeding difficulties. Most had a relatively small head size, and many who had brain imaging studies had a diffuse thinning of the part of the brain that connects the two halves, the corpus callosum. So there were a number of findings that we looked at and that many of these patients shared. So it's, it sounds like pretty serious side effects or serious uh, consequences from, from being exposed to fentanyl, uh, prenatal exposure. Are these life-lasting uh, uh, conditions or, or would a baby, is, is there a, a chance for babies to kind of recover from this? That's a very good question. The physical findings can certainly be addressed either by surgery or physical therapy the effects on brain development and the long-term effects we don't know much about and it's really hard to know what this will mean for the long-term development, learning and emotional health of these patients. Again, when you look at the analogy to fetal alcohol syndrome, we know that these effects are lifelong and even in the absence of striking physical findings, they can have significant emotional and learning effects. And behavior issues. So we don't know, but we are certainly concerned for these patients. And that's why we wanted to make people aware of this concern so that larger additional studies can happen and we can learn more. And uh, I wanted to ask you that as well, because I know this study was done in, in various locations in the United States, but is it uh, not an assumption, but is it something that could further be studied and, and it would be likely then in other cases, and, and certainly BC is dealing with a, an issue with fentanyl, that this is likely happening elsewhere? I would suspect so if we are right in that it is the fentanyl that's causing this problem and you have similar fentanyl use disorder cases, I would expect that this also happens in other locations. 
we are currently expecting to hear from other physicians who identify these patients. And so far, we have already heard from several affected families as well as from additional cases throughout the United States, but I have not heard from cases internationally. Well, it's uh, certainly uh, a very um, an interesting study and uh, very concerning looking at what's happening and what has been found so far. Dr. Grip, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for taking the time with us. Yeah, thank you for your interest. Appreciate it. That is Dr. Karen Grip, clinical geneticist, as well she's also a pediatrician at Nemours Children's Health in Wilmington, Delaware. This is Mornings with Simi. Coming up a little bit later on in the program, a bit of a reprieve for those living on boats and mooring boats at the Mosquito Creek Marina after a meeting last night after all of those people were told, you need to be out by the end of May. We are going to connect with one of those residents to find out what is happening at that marina and if it's even possible to find another place to moor a boat anywhere around Metro Vancouver. So that's coming up on the program Right now, though, we are taking a look at something that, well, you either believe it or you don't. At least I think those are the two camps people might fall into. How do, how exactly does hypnosis work? Well, my next guest knows all about that. Dr. Devin Terhune is a reader in experimental psychology at King's College London, and he joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, no problem. Happy to speak about hypnosis. Why don't we start there? What exactly is hypnosis? What is, what is happening to somebody when they're being hypnotized? Sure. I mean, so there's two kind of ways at the at first step to think about what hypnosis is. One is the classic view is to view hypnosis just kind of as some type of altered state of consciousness. So you induce hypnosis through hypnotic induction. You put them in this altered state of consciousness. And one of the features of this altered state is that people are more responsive to verbal suggestions. Um, so um, that, that type of approach is, is, is often kind of frowned upon because uh, there's not actually a lot of really strong neurophysiological and neuroimaging data to demonstrate that hypnosis is some type of distinct altered state of consciousness. So I think a, a superior way to think about these things is to view just hypnosis as a set of procedures. So just like we might view meditation and mindfulness-based practices as a set of procedures, we've used hypnosis as a set of procedures involving some type of hypnotic induction, and the induction is there to basically to enhance or increase an individual's capacity to respond to verbal suggestions. And then afterwards, we give somebody a set of verbal suggestions. And so I think that's kind of a simpler, uh, more straightforward way of thinking about hypnosis in a way that's less theory-laden and making a lot of assumptions. Now, as you can see, one of the core features then of hypnosis are verbal suggestions. So suggestions are just typically communications for a change in your experience or behavior that is typically experienced in a kind of an involuntary way. So a classic verbal suggestion might be something like, this procedure is going to reduce your pain. So it's phrased as something that is happening to you as opposed to something you're willfully producing. And as you can see, hopefully, by the way I phrase that, this procedure will reduce your pain, verbal suggestions are also a common ingredient in phenomena like the placebo effect, right? So verbal suggestions are an important ingredient, placebo, nocebo, but also something like hypnosis. And that's a kind of, a, as a starting point, that's a good way to think about hypnosis as a technique for harnessing verbal suggestions. And I know it goes back. It has a, a lengthy history. And uh, when did it actually start? 
So it kind of uh, depends on on what historical kind of antecedent uh, phenomena, events, and interventions you want to think about. Uh, typically, it's kind of um, a, it's backdated to a phenomenon called uh, animal magnetism, sometimes called mesmerism, um, and that was kind of where we first start to see evidence that verbal suggestions can have pronounced effects on subjective experience. Um, the term hypnosis really emerges in the 19th century um, in the UK and in France. Um, and that's and you know what they called hypnosis at that point, and the assumptions they were making certainly differ from those of today. But again, kind of that link with an altered state of consciousness and a close link with verbal suggestion and the capacity to respond to verbal suggestions. But we see that as far back as a kind of mid uh, mid nineteenth century. Hmm. Uh, you en- you mentioned pain or, or, or verbal command to somebody or telling somebody uh, that you're no longer feeling pain. Is that something that it's it's used for as far as medical applications and helping people with, with various conditions? Yes. I mean, so one thing that's really important to emphasize about hypnosis is that it's not a panacea. So it doesn't work with everyone. It doesn't work with every symptom and it doesn't work with every condition. Unfortunately, hip, one of the problems with hypnosis is that a lot of people have made exaggerated claims about its efficacy in various types of contexts and it presented as a panacea. Um, so some phenomena, it's not particularly that great with certain symptom domains, but pain in particular, it seems to have a good degree of efficacy. Um, we've known about that since the 19th century. So James Braid, who coined the term hypnotism, um, he was using hypnosis in the context of surgeries. Um, it continues to be used um, as an adjunct um, in surgical contexts. Um, and it's known that if you use hypnosis alongside um, kind of more traditional analgesic drugs for pain reduction, you can actually get patients to rec- um, to use the drugs less during the course of the surgery, so they rely less on the drugs um, because you're also including hypnosis and the verbal suggestions. Um, so that's that's been fairly consistently demonstrated that hypnosis can be valuable in reducing pain, also in chronic pain conditions, but also in laboratory uh, context, people without chronic pain conditions as well. I know there's also been, it's been used, and I, I've uh, known people who have used it who are trying to quit doing things like smoking and, and that kind of uh, a, a habit if you're trying to kick that habit. You mentioned it's not for everybody. Is it that you have to be open to it and you have to believe that you can be hypnotized for it to work? Um, yes, yeah, so it's not it's not for everyone, um, and that's a, a really important starting point. Um, and, and just briefly about smoking, it is it can be efficacious for smoking, but it's important to emphasize that that's a good example of a case where it's not actually especially valuable compared with other interventions. So it tends to have fairly sim- similar success rates for smoking cessation as other types of treatments, whereas it seems to be better in the domain of pain, for example. Mm. Um, but but yes, you're right. You have to have an open mind. You have to be willing to kind of um, to uh, participate in the procedure, um, just like any anything else, right? So if you have if you're trying to do psychotherapy with some patient and they don't want to do psychotherapy, then yeah, it's not really going to work, right? Mm. So it's kind of just a, a bit of a commonsensical thing. Uh, just like also, you know, if you don't really think your doctor really cares about you and they don't really have your their your best um, the best intentions or they're or you're kind of they're not very caring and respectful towards you, you're not really going to kind of benefit from from you know having sessions with your with your doctor right and uh, appointments and so on. So it's kind of something similar to that. So you need to kind of really have some degree of belief, open mindedness, willingness to participate. Um, and a capacity to respond to verbal suggestions does seem to fairly reliably predict treatment outcomes. 
right? So people that are more responsive to hypnosis, this is sometimes termed hypnotizability or hypnotic suggestibility. Those individuals who are more responsive to hypnosis tend to be more responsive to therapeutic applications of hypnosis, as you would guess. It's not a perfect predictor, though. And so if you're kind of more low in hypnotizability or low in hypnotic suggestibility, you can still benefit from hypnosis in certain contexts. And a big factor, of course, are things like just motivation, just how motivated you are for the therapeutic intervention to work. That's a kind of a fairly common uh, predictor, both in hypnosis and in other contexts as well, of course. All right. Well, it's uh, very interesting, such an interesting field. Dr. Terhune, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thanks so much. Have a nice day. That is Dr. Devin Terhune, reader in experimental psychology at King's College London. This is Mornings with Simi. Nobody living in the marina will have to leave the marina by May 31st. The change of tune from Enchikai Development Corporation comes after they told residents of roughly 40 households they would be evicted by May 31st of next year due to unsafe dock conditions. All right, that from a Global News report. A bit of a reprieve for some of the people living on boats at the Mosquito Creek Marina on the North Shore, but still a lot of uncertainty about the future of that marina. Joining us now is Charlie Bell, one of those residents. Charlie, thank you so much for taking some time this morning. No worries at all. It's great to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about the marina and your living conditions there? Sure. So there's uh, approximately 400 uh, vessels that um, are moored at Mosquito Creek Marina in North Vancouver. And of those approximate uh, 400 vessels, about 100 uh, have full-time residents. And, you know, it's it's just um, a really great solution at the moment to live in what is a very unaffordable city. And how long have you been living there? Uh, it's been uh, just over a year. And I know some of the other residents have uh, talked about this and spoken out about this as well. And like you said, uh, a a good living uh, situation given the state of housing right now. Would you would you classify it or kind of describe it as a as a community? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, once you're you're behind those gates, there's a real sense that, you know, you're there for each other. You look out for each other. Just the nature of boating, things can go wrong. And, um, you know, a shared sense of community and the fact that, you know, you're living this alternative way of life. So it's it's a special environment. And would you classify it as affordable? Um, absolutely. So, I mean, you pay uh, a yearly uh, mortgage fee, but there's, there's no additional fees uh, in terms of, you know, other other living costs. So it's it it's currently quite a good yeah quite a great deal, a really good deal. So the email that originally came out, the one that said uh, those with boats and and having boats moored at the marina had to be gone by the end of May because of repairs. What what happened or what was your response when you first got that email? So first, just absolute shock. Had no idea that this was on the cards. Um, you know, you would imagine they, they've expressed the reason for this happening, that it was due to safety concerns. And, you know, the, it, it is an aging marina. It is old. Um, but you would expect that they would repair things in a siloed basis so that, you know, perhaps they could do one jetty at a time, give the people at that one jetty an opportunity to perhaps 
um, more somewhere, somewhere else in the marina. But the fact that they're doing it all at once and just kicking everyone out, it, it makes no sense in my head. and It, it still doesn't. So after the meeting, though, uh, that email went out. Uh, people, I think, had very similar responses to, to yours. Uh, people living at the marina and those uh, who aren't living on boats but have boats moored there as well. There was a meeting with the company that put the email out. And it sounds like they at least have kind of pulled back and are now saying that if you are living, if that is your primary residence, you they're now saying they're not going to kick people out by the end of May. Is that is that what happened at the meeting? I'm not aware of that. I don't think there's been any progress on that front. So as far as you know, you still need to be out by the end of May? That's correct. And look, it's, I, I think there's, there's something here in my head. This claim that it's for safety, absolute lies, and it's, there's some development play here. Because, and I know other residents have said that as well, that, that yes, it is an aging marina, like you said, and it needs repairs, but the repairs could be done while the boats and the, the boat houses are still there, rather than saying they yep. all need to be done at once. Have they told you that there are any plans for development or any plans to change things at the marina? Nothing. There's been no mention of that, but I imagine that they're being very strategic it will always be their underlining word that it, it will be due to safety. But just the fact alone that they're removing everyone at once, my only logical, um, the, only, the only logical sense at this point is that it is because they need to move everyone out for some sort of development, whether that's to host super yachts or waterfront infrastructure. Right. Okay. Uh, it does sound, though, uh, that uh, at that meeting last night, uh, that the company did did come out and say that, that that it wouldn't be a mass eviction come the end of May. I mean, it's unclear at what point people might have to leave and where they could go, but it does sound at least they're not being as heavy handed as they were in the original email. But if you do have to leave at some point, is there anywhere for for people with boats to go as far as finding moorage elsewhere? Well, part of the devastation um, and complicating factor in all of this is that it's over a 10-year wait list at other marinas within Vancouver. So people are going to find it extremely hard to find similar accommodation um, or similar moorage. Um, and, you know, there are options. People do mention things like, you know, you can moor in Vancouver Island, perhaps the, the wait lists aren't as long or Bowen Island. But, you know, People's home is Vancouver. This is where they want to be. And if, if they're looking to stay within this great city, but very, obviously very unaffordable city, there's hardly any options. And I understand too, and I think that you fall into this category, it's people not only living aboard some of the boats at the marina, but whether it was during the pandemic when things changed or, or finding kind of creative ways to work from home, that people are also uh, finding it to, that they're able to work remotely and work from those boats as well, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say the people that live there, it's, it's quite diverse. There are families there are retirees, and then there are people that run their full businesses from there. Um, I know one guy in particular, he, uh, he works in sales, but he also maintains all of his assets um, at the marina, all of his inventory he stores there, um, all of his IT equipment, it's all there. And he, he is nowhere, it'll be difficult to, for him um, on top of finding new accommodation, it'll be highly difficult to find somewhere to store 
um, all of his business assets. And as far as the company doing this, what are the the agreements or how does that look? Is it a a lease that's signed year to year or or do you have any certainty or any promise that that you are able to stay there? Yes, so we are speaking with lawyers at the moment, but the understanding is that there is just a set year by year lease, but we are currently exploring what rights we may have um, that might go beyond the contract. Right. And so is that lease up at the end of May? And is that where the, the May 31st date came from? That's correct. That's what, that's what advises in our contract. Right. So up until this point, every May or, or whenever around that time, people would re-sign the lease. And, and do you renegotiate at that point what the mortgage fees are? Or has it been a pretty straightforward process? It's straightforward. They give us a fee and we pay it. And apart from the meeting last night, are there any other meetings that have taken place or are there any meetings that you know of that are planned with the the company that owns the marina to to try and figure out a solution here? Uh, Not at the moment. We are having a lot of internal meetings within the community. Um, We've established a committee. Um, We... you know, we have certain individuals working with lawyers, certain individuals working with the media. Um, but, you know, it's, it's going to be ongoing. We do want to maintain a high level of interaction um, with the entity that owns the marina. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's working in progress. Do you think this could potentially lead to people uh, living on their boats? I know it's been a concern in False Creek with crowding. And even though boats are only supposed to be there a certain amount of time, sometimes people overstay the rules or then even going out past uh, English Bay. Do you think this could lead to to people with no other options uh, living on their boats in a more open way like that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I I think it's something that the city... What's going on here? The city of Vancouver needs to be um, kept up to date and understand the risks that there is a possibility that people may end up um, anchoring in who knows where around the city. And obviously that creates a series of risks uh, for safety as well as spacing with larger boats and cargo ships. So definitely creates risks if 400 boats have nowhere to go. Well, Charlie, we will continue uh, watching this and looking for updates on this. But thank you so much for taking some time this morning and for coming on the show. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. That is Charlie Bell, one of the residents of the Mosquito Creek Marina, unsure about the future with what is happening at at that marina. And uh, the boats and the boat owners told that they will have to vacate that marina in the spring.